Second Timothy is a letter that is unlike First Timothy. Now, because of some technical difficulties we had last week, we were not able to record um, the first service. It was verse 1 through 8. Sorry, Heather. Hey, you should have been here. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> hey, she owns it. It's okay. But, but that said, I'm going to try and go back and teach that to an empty room and record it so you guys can benefit from it because I gave the history of what was going on at the time. Paul was not in his arresting that we see in Acts at the end where he goes through all these trials and he goes to these different places and he finally ends up in Rome as a prisoner of Rome, but he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm an apostle according to the will of God. I'm in prison according to the will of God. And I tell you what, if you can look at your life like the Apostle Paul did, um, I don't think there's going to be nearly as much whining. Now, I'm the chief of all whiners in here. Ask my wife. Um, but, but the reality is, no matter what, um, if you are called by God, and we're going to look at that today, and if God has died to save your soul, but also to give you life abundantly now, the reality is, is if he allows you to go through something, even stuff that we don't like, it is according to the will of God. Now, with the one disclaimer that there are things that we put ourselves through that are consequences of us disobeying the commands of God. And so while God's will will happen no matter what in your life if you are his child, the reality is when we ignore his instruction, we can get into trouble. We can have consequences that are not his will. And however you want to, you know, argue that out, you know, God's completely in control and yet I have decisions to make and he gives me the ability to really mess things up. And in all of that, if you wrap that up in a bundle, God is then able to use us no matter what. Look at the story of the, the, the prophet Jonah. You know, one of the most obviously glaring steps of disobedience was him saying, no, God, I won't do that. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to go the opposite direction. And what we find out is even in his disobedience, God spoke to people that did not know him and brought them to faith. And so uh, while that makes me feel uncomfortable to tell believers that because it's like, oh, well, I can just do whatever. Well, I would not suggest it because Jonah had to go jump in the ocean or be thrown into the ocean. And then he spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. So if you like the belly of a whale and you want to go on a uh, free, expensive paid, expenses paid fast while you're in the belly of a fish, go for it. Sin all you want. God's still going to bring it around. Those are the consequences, right? But according to the will of God, if we'll just simply take heed to what he's teaching us, we'll listen to what he wants to show us, the reality is he will not guide us into sin. He will not guide us into consequences. He will guide us into blessing. And sometimes that blessing means it's a, it's a hard thing to go through. And we're seeing that through the pen of Paul here. Pen is, pen. Paul has been re-arrested. He was in Ephesus. He was there encouraging the church, and at about that time, there was persecution in the Roman Empire unheard of by the emperor Nero. He was the one in charge. He actually burned a portion of the city to make his palace bigger. He was a megalomaniac. He was greedy. He was consumed with power, and so he thought, I'll just burn a couple buildings down, and it's arguable how he did that, but when he did that, uh, the fire got out of control. And more buildings and people got killed and destroyed than he planned on. 
And so uh, he was in political problem at that point, right? Because he had made a big old mistake. Now, if it's just a little fire, apparently he didn't mind the consequences, but because it got out of hand and burned two-thirds of Rome, there might be some political backlash from that. And so he goes, what do I do? Well, what does every politician do when they do something wrong if they're not godly? They blame someone else. And so Paul goes, you know, or uh, Nero goes, you know, there's these Christians and they're kind of messing with our system. They don't like us worshiping all these other gods. I'll blame them. And he made the Christians the scapegoat and unleashed unheard of persecution that ultimately led to Paul's death. And so Paul, uh, being in Ephesus, was rearrested, brought into prison, and we talked about the fact that he wasn't just in prison, but he was on death row. He was in solitary confinement. He was in uh, shambles. But at the same time, while he was in prison, his bad circumstances, he used the opportunity he had to write to Timothy, his protege, his, his, his Timothy, and, and he wrote to him words of encouragement to keep going because Timothy was there, many believe, while Paul was being arrested. And he actually refers to that in chapter 1, where it says this in verse 4. He says, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears. He, he says, I remember you. I remember how you were when I left you, and I'm mindful of the fact that you were sorrowing when I last saw you. He says, So I don't want you to be discouraged so much that you're in despair and you give up. I want to write you this letter of encouragement. And if you'll remember with me, I showed a picture of the Mamertine prison that he was imprisoned in. It was a drawing, but then I showed you the real prison. But in that prison, there was a main area called the carcer where the, all the prisoners would come that were on trial. And if they would actually be uh, guilty or not guilty, uh, they would just wait in that prison. But then there was a hole about the size that a man could fit through that was for the downstairs. And that downstairs was the, uh, the death row place but there was no bathroom in the carcer above. There was just a hole in the floor where only you could get in and out. And so uh, people would go to the bathroom through that thing. So Paul is literally finding himself in a refuse hole. We'll use that word. And he is sitting down there watching people relieve themselves, and he's writing words of encouragement to Timothy, who's not in a refuse hole. Uh, so uh, with that being the context, here in verse 8 we continue... After in verse 6, he says, I want to remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but instead he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, a sure faith. So verse 8, he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I am appointed, meaning I am picked, God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. For this reason, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So let's unpack this. Here we are. Uh, Paul says, look, I'm in jail, but don't be, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. So what is shame? Many of us walk around in chains to shame. And I just listened to my pastor teach Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul wrote this same thing to the Roman church. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for to me it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, why does he keep bringing up this theme of shame? Because many of us are ashamed. We don't look at it that way, but shame is what keeps us from living boldly. And if you think about it, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, what it says there is that Adam and Eve were both in the Garden of Eden. They were naked. They were completely uncovered. Nothing to hide behind. And yet what it says about them is they were not ashamed. They were in the presence of a holy God who created them with all the animals. And there's all other things, and we'll study Genesis one day and go through that. But one of the key pieces we need to notice is they were naked and unashamed. They, there was no shame. And I find this amazing because um, if, you know, you, they always say, tell public speakers that if you're up there speaking, imagine everybody's in their underwear, which I think is the creepiest thing in the whole world. But it's essentially saying, hey, imagine that they're embarrassed and you're actually getting to talk and they're letting you, you know. Um, but, you know, but everybody inherently has the dream the night before that they get up to speak and then they don't have any clothes on. And it causes them to be ashamed, right? So many of us walk through life ashamed. Not because we're missing our clothes, but because we, got, we all got stuff going on and we think, I, I think someone else knows about it. And the thought of somebody else knowing about it makes us completely locked up and in the paralysis of what other people, the fear of man. And Proverbs says the fear of man brings a snare, but those who fear the Lord will be safe. And so in Genesis 2.25, they were naked and they were unashamed. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, we find out that they were tempted by the serpent. And as they were tempted, they, they gave in to the temptation. They fell to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That they saw that the fruit was good, they ate it, and then completely uh, just disobeying the warning from God, they listened to the serpent instead of God, fearing that maybe God was withholding something from them that they needed. And what happened? They ate the fruit, and it says the first thing they did was they hid. They were ashamed. As a matter of fact, God came through the garden as he always did, and he said, Adam, Eve, where are you? knowing full and well what had happened. And he starts to ask them questions, trying to get a confession out of them. Hey, we disobeyed your command. But they start blaming each other, right? Kind of like Nero blamed Paul. Oh, he did it. You know, the Christians did it. That's shame. It's pride. And so he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed to tell others about Jesus. Many people don't share Jesus with others because of shame. It's not that they don't believe it. It's that they are afraid of the backlash. What do you mean you're telling me about Jesus? I know X, Y, and Z about you. But if you believe what they say is true and those things are true, the reality is you're not living in the light of the fact that those things were forgiven and atoned for by God. The gospel is not that I am now perfect and Jesus is my homeboy. The gospel is this. 
Jesus Christ saves sinners, and of whom I am one of them. I'm a partaker in this good news. I've received the gift. It's a gift. I'm still jacked up. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to stand up there and say, hey, I get to come in because of, look at this. Who wouldn't want this? The gospel says I'm here because of that man who sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's still praying for everybody. He got me here. He sealed me with his Holy Spirit. I'm here because of his grace. God allowed me in because he is, I, I don't know why he allowed me in, but because of his son Jesus, in whom he was well pleased. And so he says, don't be ashamed to tell others about Jesus. We are ashamed to tell others about Jesus, not because we don't believe it to be true, but because we are afraid that someone else will shine the mirror back at us. But the mirror doesn't reflect what we are in Christ. And so Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, I am unashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. I don't have the strength to pull myself up by all my own bootstraps. And then it, uh, I also have another one there for you in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. He says this. When Jesus had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, in other words, whoever desires to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me, look at that, verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So he says, don't be ashamed. Don't let shame tie you down. Reckon those things that were in the former life, hopefully in the former life, to have been atoned for by Jesus. So then he also says, don't be ashamed of me. Now I put there for you a picture of this man's leader. Who do you follow? This guy that's in prison. Can you imagine if you told people that you started a business, and you started it, you're an entrepreneur, and they said, well, who trained you on how to be a businessman? And you said, that guy that's in prison. All of a sudden, you lost credibility, right? Can you imagine if Timothy's going out and sharing the gospel, and they said, well, wait a minute, who are you a disciple of? Of course, he's going to say Jesus. They're going to say, okay, but who's your pastor? Uh, Paul the apostle. Isn't he in prison? Isn't he on uh, Rome's most wanted list? Like, that takes out credibility, right? in the eyes of the world. But he's saying, don't be ashamed of me, even though I'm in prison. And I think this is a word of encouragement to him because many times we, again, like I said last week, we look at our situations and we say, God is blessing someone or God is, I'm, I'm living in the will of God whether or not my circumstances feel the way that I think that they should. Sometimes God allows us to be imprisoned to certain things because he's trying to work out and prove our faith, not in easy situations, but in difficulties. And he's showing his light through us as we glory, he writes in Romans, we glory in tribulation. We actually shine the brightest when life's pressure pushes down on us and our cracks are shown 
and then the glory of the gospel is revealed, not because we're perfect, but through our cracks, people see that we trust in Jesus. And so he says, don't be ashamed of me, even though I'm in prison. And then he says, he says, um, there it is. He says, instead of being ashamed, he says, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Instead of being ashamed, he says, embrace it and share with me in the sufferings of Jesus. Suffer for the sake of the good news. Allow God to produce in you and to proclaim through you his glory through tribulation and suffering. But he doesn't say to do it in their own power. He says, do it with the strength that God gives. And that is the key. If you want to glorify God in the midst of struggle in your life, the only way to do it properly where God gets the glory is going to be doing it uh, according to the power that God supplies. And so we go on to verse 9. He says, Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. He says, The power of God, and it's God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So he says, don't be ashamed, and then he gives a reason. See, many times we just tell people to do things, but we don't explain to them why. Now, there are different seasons in life. Right now, with my kids, uh, there are times where we explain things, and there are times where we just say, do. I'm not going to explain you need to obey now. You need to trust that we have your best interest in mind. And once you learn to trust me in faith, essentially, uh, we'll start explaining the why. But until then, just learn to trust and obey for there's no other way, right? The, I mean, the hymn is so true because many times we say, God, why? And he looks at us and he says, just do. But there are also times that I believe we don't take advantage of where we say, why? He's answering, but we're not listening. Why is this going on? He wants to answer those questions. He wants to interact with you. And he says here, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now I have there for you, hopefully you can read it. God has saved you. If you are in Christ Jesus, he has already positionally saved you. You are saved. You are, he's given you his Holy Spirit to guarantee your entryway into heaven. He's going to bring you through this life. His Holy Spirit will empower you to do that. But do you also know that God picked you? Now, I put that picture there for you. Looks guy, like the guy from King of Queens, but I don't think it is. But he's sitting there looking at a phone. And I was thinking about this. I want, what I wanted a picture of was Barney Fife. Because there's an episode where Barney and Andy Griffith, or Andy, whatever, Andy Taylor, have been invited to be a part of this Esquire club. And as they're being invited to be a part of this Esquire club, they go up and they're, they're checking out the club and the guys are looking them over to see if they're material for this club. And Barney thinks he's got it all together. He's talking about things he has no idea about. He's looking like a fool. And Andy's just being himself. So they all come home, and the next day he goes, hey, have you heard back from them? Have they called us to be a part of the club? Except he's not sitting by a flip phone, which is an old school. That's a razor right there. That's a Motorola razor. Who remembers those? Everybody wanted one of those. Those things don't do anything. 
We should have just waited, saved our money. Anyway, but my point is, Andy is not worried about it. He doesn't care if he's in the club or not. But Barney, he wants to be a part of the Esquire Club. And so what does he do? He sits by the phone. He calls Sarah. He says, Sarah, make sure you keep this line clear. We got important police business. He's waiting by the phone to see if he gets picked for the team, right? Or in elementary school, you're playing kickball. You do not want to be the last one called, and so you're just looking at him like, please don't pick me last. Please pick me. I don't care who. just want to be on a team. Maybe that wasn't your thing. That was me. I was short and unathletic. I don't know why they wouldn't pick me. So I blame it on all kinds of other things. But my point is, God picked you. This isn't some elementary school sports athletic hero that you want to be your friend so you got credibility. This isn't some Esquire club where really it's going to be debauchery anyway. You know, 60s debauchery that looks like Mayberry. So it's probably all cleaned up. It was probably better back then, you know. But this is a club, this is a heavenly kingdom that's run by the creator of humans and earth and all the animals and all of his wisdom. He picked us to be heirs with his son of salvation that doesn't ever end. He picked us to be a part of his kingdom, sons and daughters of God. And he provided our entry, not making us cool by changing our clothes or our attitude or how much we know about the stock market or our, our, our golf strategies or anything like that. He didn't pick us because we were pickable. He picks the unlovely. He picks goobers that aren't big enough to play kickball and are unathletic. He picks ungodly people to show himself amazing to the world and awesome. And, and I love this because he didn't pick us because we were pickable. He picked us because he is love and he delights in us and he wants to interact with us. And Many times uh, people that have lots of means or financial gain or many people who are prominent in society, many people like Caesar Nero in Rome did, did not receive the gospel because they were so proud of themselves. Look how great I am. Why would I want to go to heaven? This is great right here. And the beauty is, is that God picks people that recognize their own brokenness and their own need of a savior. He picks people that recognize that they are, are jacked up and they got nothing to offer the world. But with Christ, we are made new. And so he picked us. He saved us. He paid the price for our entry into the kingdom. And then he set us. I put there for you, you, so maybe you can more apply it to you. Because it is about us as the church corporately, but you have to recognize these truths for you. God saved you. If you were the only human being that ever existed, Jesus still would have came, lived, allowed himself to be brutally murdered on your behalf. Just you. Let that sink in. And then he picked you. And then he set you apart for a specific purpose. He's gifted you for specific ways to, to affect this world. Now, many of you don't feel like that's the case at all. Many of you go, hey, I don't know what God's gifted me to do, and I don't even know if he's gifted me to do anything. Well, guess what? Scripture tells me that you're flat out wrong and that you're believing the lies of the enemy. God didn't pick you because you had nothing to offer in Christ. He picked you because he had a specific reason and a way he wants to use you. And we don't deserve it. It's according to his purpose and his favor. And he, it, 
Here's the other thing to grasp. If you want to know whether or not God picked you because of your own merit or your own pickability, he picked you, this verse says, before time began. So even before you were knit and created and put together and molded in your mother's womb, before you were ever a gleam in your dad's eye, however you want to put it, before the world was created, God picked you. He saw it. He saw what you were going to do. He saw all the bad decisions you would make. He saw all the good decisions you were going to make. And he picked you, knowing everything ahead of time. I love this, because my before Christ days, I have a lot of things that if I dwell on them too long and don't reckon them to be forgiven by God, I'm not only not pickable, I'm disqualified. I'm wrong. I'm not fit to be in the presence of God. I recognize that. And when I recognize that he did everything he could to make that right again, how freeing. And so, verse 10, he says this, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. God's now revealed his love. He's now revealed the gospel to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And I love this because Paul then goes on to say all these things that he said about us, all these things he said about Christians who are now in Christ, he then says it about himself. He says, I'm a partaker. I'm a preacher. I'm the one that heralds this message and proclaims it, but I'm also a partaker. He says, God saved Paul. God called Paul specifically. And I have that picture for you where he's kind of laying on the ground. He's been knocked down and there's this bright light shining. And it says in scripture that he actually was blinded by God, essentially to reveal to him that he was blind spiritually. And then it says God appointed Paul as a preacher, someone to go out and proclaim. That's what it means, a herald, an apostle. The word that means just a sent one, one that is sent out with a message. And then a teacher to the Gentiles, which is amazing because Paul was Jewish. But he sent him to the Gentiles. Paul couldn't stand believers that were Jewish that became Christians. And now he's going to go proclaim the gospel to people that they would not associate with. Hey, Paul, you know how you hate the Gentiles? You're so glad that you're not. It was a prayer in the days of Paul and before Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a dog. And thank you that I'm not a woman. That's what Jewish men would pray. And God saved him anyway. And now he's appointed to go proclaim this good news and, and disciple people who are Gentiles. And he, Paul knows that this wasn't according to works because what were Paul's works before Jesus? He took Christians. He had official okie-dokie to go do it. He took Christians out of their homes. He took them to jail for blaspheming God. And he was actually there on the first day that there was a martyr that was stoned to death for believing in Jesus, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6. And what we find is that Paul was there, not necessarily throwing stones, but he held the coats of those who killed the first Christian martyr. So as a result of these truths, Paul says, I was called, I was saved, 
I've been sent. I have a holy calling. And it's for the calling that God has given to me. That's the reason I'm suffering. Do you know that because God's called you to be a believer, that you will suffer for that calling? It doesn't make us more holy, but it does. In this world, Jesus said, if you follow me in this world, you will suffer persecution. And Paul actually wrote that. He said, if you follow me, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will suffer for it. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. This isn't the greatest news, right? But it's all in light of it. It makes it worth it if you recognize all the things we just talked about, that God picked us, he saved us, he's given us a purpose. And so in verse 12, he continues on and he says, for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He says, I am not ashamed. I'm suffering for righteousness sake. Therefore, I got nothing to be ashamed of. Many people go to prison for doing the wrong thing. That's something to be ashamed of. But to go to prison for doing the right thing, there's no shame in that because you couldn't do any other. The first disciples that were arrested for proclaiming the gospel in the book of Acts, they said, hey, you choose. You tell us, talking to the religious leaders, is it right for us to obey men or to obey God? And pretty much pointing out, hey, if we're going to go to jail for obeying God, I think we're in a good spot. I think it's okay. I think God's going to work it out. Even if we get put to death for this thing, he's going to high-five us on the way into the kingdom. He's going to approve, you know. And so he says, I'm not ashamed. Suffering for wrong brings shame, right? Suffering for doing what's right, we should not be ashamed. And there is a temp there's a temptation when we do the right thing to be, to be ashamed when we do the right thing and suffer for it. Paul says, don't, don't sweat that. God's got this. If you've obeyed God, he will protect you in that obedience. But notice what he says. He doesn't say, I know what I have believed. Many people want to come back to what they've believed, the knowledge that they've acquired from reading Scripture. But the part of reading Scripture is many times people read the Bible and they get to know information. Information can't have a relationship with you, by the way. But the point in Scripture is that it reveals Jesus. And if we get to know the scriptures, what we should get to know more of is Jesus Christ. And we should deepen in our relationship through it. And so Paul doesn't say, I know what I've believed. I know the truths. He says, I know who's got me. I know who's got my back. I know whom I have believed. And I have there for you in, uh, in, in that he says, I am persuaded. I am persuaded by the person that I know is what he's saying. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. What had Paul committed to Jesus? Everything. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so Paul was still living out the law, but he was committing his life, his, his strength, his, his will to the one, the person of Jesus Christ. And so because he knew who he believed, he knew that he could trust him. Uh, sometimes we, we try to trust information, and we're really bad about it these days, right? If you don't know something, what do you do? Do you pray about it first? I'm guilty. 
No, I'd Google it, right? Because Google knows everything. Except what we don't know is that, and I'm not trying to create anyone that's paranoid, but Google knows also what you searched the day before and the day before and the day before. And they use that information to funnel what they think you want to know. So many times we end up looking for information in an echo chamber that's saying all the things that we've already said. You know, we do that with friends too, right? We trust our friends. Well, we don't surround ourselves with people that disagree with us. I don't. I surround myself with people that believe all the same things I do. Here's the problem with that. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Sometimes what I want to hear is not what I need to hear. Sometimes what I want to hear will mean death. It will mean sin rather than what I need to hear. And so uh, Paul says, I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him. If he's allowed me to go to jail, if he allows me to go to death row, he's able to keep what I've committed to him, which is my everything, until the day of Christ Jesus. So if he allows me to be killed, he's got a reason for it. If he allows me to get stuck in traffic and I'm running late for a meeting, he has allowed it and he's got a reason for it. can't tell you how many times I've been stuck behind a slow car and then I get about a mile ahead and I'm running late for work and there's a wreck. It could have been me. And so all of those things said, uh, we look at circumstances and we get uh, discouraged, but Paul says, keep trusting, keep believing in Jesus, keep trusting him with your life and know that I trust him in jail, you can trust him while you're out of jail. And so then he goes on to talk about that, but what I want to point out is that this is not a new thing to have faith in God and to trust him in hard circumstances. Look at Daniel chapter 3. We're not going to turn there for today's sake, but go back and read it. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their real names, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. By the way, Hebrew version of Michael, Mishael. I like that. So then you have these three guys, they live in a culture, and in their culture, the king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, says, um, anyone, when you hear this music play, I built this huge golden statue. When you hear the music play, I want you bowing down, and I want you worshiping me. And so Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael have been taken out of the Hebrew nation. They're fearers of God. They've already taken steps of faith. Wouldn't it just be easier with thousands and thousands of people just to blend in and to bow down? Except the law of the Lord says you shall have no other gods except me. You shall worship no other gods. And so they have the choice to either take a stand, even though it might cost them, or to just bow down and blend in. No big deal. He says, but don't be ashamed, right? So Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, they don't bow. And that picture for you shows what it would have looked like. They stand out like a sore thumb. They don't get to live out their faith quietly. Everyone's bowing. They've decided, I will obey God. I know who I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to take care of me when I obey. So they stand. I could imagine, if you will, look at the fourth guy trying to help. Hey, you need to get down here. Hey, don't do this. He's already promised that anybody doesn't bow down. It's not like they get made fun of. That's all we usually get to go through. They get thrown into a burning, fiery furnace, an inferno, hell on earth, melted to death. I, I cannot imagine that it was like a slow death. I think it was, or a fast death. I think it was an excruciating, rending, like nobody likes to get burned. I don't. Burns stick with you. Even if you survive it, guess what happens? 
you're still hurting for it. That's why when we sent out the prayer request for TJ this week, pray for him because he's got a long road ahead if he's got burns. Um, but that said, here these guys are, and they stand up, and what the guy finds out, Nebuchadnezzar, they drag them. There's people in there going, hey, these guys are troublemakers. They're not bowing down. And so Nebuchadnezzar is incensed. He gets so angry, he heats the fire seven times hotter than they've ever fired it. And he says, I'm going to throw you in here. I'll give you one more chance. And they say, hey, look. And uh, I'm going to turn there because they say something specific that resonates with what uh, Paul has written here. Should have marked the page. Bible drill. There it is. Thank you, Lord. Daniel chapter 3. And it's in verse... 26, he says, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke. He'd already thrown them in. He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So they had already gone in. Sorry, I meant to read the verse where they they say something. Here it is, verse uh, 17. He says, these men say to Nebuchadnezzar, who is able to take their life, They say, if this is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And for that, God saved them, right? No, he allowed them to go into the fiery furnace, and then he met with them in the fiery furnace. And what we find out is that through that, uh, the king at the time got to know the one true and living God and actually praised his name. Verse 28 says, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word, yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. So, last uh, four verses or five verses. Verse 13 says, Hold fast, Timothy, to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So this faith you've been given, keep it by the power of God. Let God live through you. This you know that all those in Asia have returned, have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus, Hermogenes, and the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, who was Philemon's slave, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So he talks about these individuals who, having faith, had ministered to him, but he also talks about the group of people that used to hang out with him that have abandoned him. You know, many of us think the early church people were just knit together and it was like everybody was sharing. But when Paul went to prison the second time, everybody abandoned him. They left him hanging high and dry by himself. He was suffering. And what we find is that he was writing letters to others to encourage them. So he says, hold fast to the faith, Timothy. Anchor yourself by faith, trusting and love, knowing him in Jesus. Hold fast to your confession of faith, trusting the Holy Spirit to empower and lead you, and hold fast 
not just for yourself, but for those that are in your life that you impact that are following you. We all have influence. Our influence is being used whether we plan on it or not. When we hold fast to the faith, when we share Jesus with others, it impacts those that hear us. And then he says, Jesus will encourage others through us as we simply confess, profess, and live what we believe. So I have there for you this verse as we close. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Where I believe it was Paul, but many others don't know that we really know the author. But the author writes there to the Hebrew believers in Christ. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. I like that word, confession. Because confession is what we speak, right? It's what we tell people we believe. So he says that our hope is based on our confession. He says, hold fast without wavering. And then he says this, for he who promised is faithful. We can hold fast and we can profess this because Jesus, who is the one that made the promise, promise is only good as the person that makes it, right? Many people in your lives probably make you promises and you know right as soon as they say it, ain't happening. But there are those in our lives that we know if they say yes, then it's a yes. And if they say no, it's a no. And sometimes those people that say no, it's a maybe because they might still do it. They just don't want to commit to it. Well, Jesus has already told us, I'm going to deliver you through this age. But do we confess that, number one? Do we really believe it? Do we confess it? And then do we also live like it? Do we live like if we continue to profess that God will protect us? Do we live like if we hold fast and we don't lie to our boss about something that our coworker says, hey, don't tell him this, we'll get in trouble. Do we hold fast to the truth that if we remain without spot or blemish and we hold fast to the integrity of the Lord that he will deliver us when we tell the truth and it might cost us? Do we hold fast to our faith when we want to share our faith with somebody? We feel God's impressing it upon us. Hey, just share Jesus with this person. They don't know him. Oh, but they may not like me anymore. Do we say it anyway? So the question is, are we ashamed or are we holding fast? And it's really only one or the other. And I say this to you as a pastor who many times I have to say I'm, I'm actually more in grip with, uh, with being ashamed and not speaking. And God's been challenging me through this book. Uh, what's it going to cost you, really? Is it going to cost you your job? Probably not. Is it going to cost you your friends? Maybe, and it has. But how, what was the last time that you lost a friend for telling them about Jesus? I have to say, in the last 12 years, I don't know that I've really lost that many because I was bold and unashamed. Um, and many times you won't, but sometimes you might. So all that said, let's hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering because Jesus is faithful. He promised it. He will take us through it. And, and I want to be with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. I'm sorry, but at this point in my life, I'm losing my hair. Uh, I'm not that good looking. Uh, I'm married. I've got two kids on me all the time. I got the, the dad belly going, which kills me in pictures, by the way. I don't know how to make that thing go away. But my point is, I really don't care what people think about me anymore. I, I, I'm growing in that. I still have the, a little bit of that there but I would rather offend people and they come to know the author of life than not offend them and, and encourage them all the way to hell. You know, uh, 
I'm at the point where I, I, I believe so much that it's time for me to get off the bench. So as we take communion this morning, let us recognize that it's not because of the Apostle Paul. It's not because of Timothy. It should be all because of Jesus. Because the reality is, if Jesus was willing to die for this confession that we have, that we can give and be unashamed of, then we should be willing to. We should be willing to. We should be willing to, because we have first been loved, express love to our Savior. And He doesn't ask us to go and die on a cross. He asks us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him, to be living sacrifices. So we're going to take communion this morning. And as we get ready to take communion, we will uh, start with a song. But many of you who are here this morning, you've taken communion with us before.